Today's episode is sponsored by the Rising Tide Mastermind. The Rising Tide Mastermind is where people just like you get together every week to help each other with issues. Let's face it, issues are hard, so why start from square one when somebody can tell you what they've done with a similar issue? If this sounds like something that's interesting to you, go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash mastermind to see if the Rising Tide Mastermind is right for you. Welcome to the Scaling Up H2O podcast, the voice of the industrial water treatment industry, and of course, your favorite water treatment podcast. My name is Trace Blackmore, and I am the host of the Scaling Up H2O podcast. And Nation, how is it that we are getting ready to say goodbye to the month of November? I always do something special for the beginning of the year. And of course, that was many, many months ago. It seems to me like it was just yesterday. So I'm wondering, is your year going by as quickly as my year? And it probably is that the answer that you are saying as you're talking back to this podcast is yes, it is going just as fast, if not faster. So that lets us think we really need to savor events when they happen. When we learn something new, we need to savor that. All of the things that we experience day by day, it's very easy to get caught up in the day-to-day and not celebrate all of those new things, all of those significant things. So here's my ask for everybody in the Scaling Up Nation that you take a moment and you acknowledge significant moments when they happen. And maybe there's a moment that you don't think is too significant, but it's never happened to you before, so make it significant and acknowledge it. Take a moment just to think, wow, I am growing as a person, I am growing as a professional. And it's my hope as you celebrate Thanksgiving that you give thanks to all of the people that are in your life that make your life so special. Somebody told me when they were talking about the art of accumulating stuff within one's life that sooner or later, all that stuff goes back in the box. Yes, folks, you can't take it with you. And when you really account for all the things that matter, it's all about relationships. So celebrate all the relationships that you have that make your life worthwhile. Now, I got to thinking, when did it get decided that Thanksgiving in America was going to be the last Thursday in the month of November? Well, that was in 1863, and President Abraham Lincoln was the one that declared this. And of course, this was in recognition to the three-day feast of harvest shared by the pilgrims and the indigenous people back in 1621. So there you go, relationships. Two cultures that should not have gotten together. They had all these differences. They could not speak the same language, but they not only shared a meal together, that meal lasted three days. Wow, aren't you thankful that your Thanksgiving is not lasting three days? So think to yourself, what are all of the relationships that you are thankful for? I am going to go right out and say it. I am thankful for you being part of the Scaling Up Nation. This is episode 339. Can you believe that? I can't believe this as I am staring at my recording equipment. And I'm thinking of how many times my recording equipment has gotten upgraded over the years. I hope you can hear that as you're driving from account to account. But it allows me to think back to my very first day when I didn't have any recording equipment and I used a Bluetooth headset hooked up to my computer and that was episode one. And I think back from episode one where I knew absolutely nothing about creating a podcast 
to today where I have learned so much about podcast creation, and I did not do that alone. So many people within the podcasting universe have helped me with information that I didn't know I didn't know, but because I go to conferences and I try to reach out to people of podcasts that I really respect, and I ask them questions. How do I get better? What are some things that you do that might make me better? And it is amazing how that dialogue just flows from there. So I am going to ask that if you do not have just an amazing wealth of people that you can call about any issue, don't stop meeting people. Don't stop giving to people so they want to give to you. That's a mindset we have in the Rising Tide Mastermind. And of course, I talk about the Rising Tide Mastermind quite a bit on this show because I'm so proud of it. That is a group where we get together on a regular basis to help solve each other's issues. But I ask each and every member to come with a full cup mentality. And the full cup mentality is my cup is full because I want to fill someone else's cup. And if we all come with that full cup mentality, well, somebody's cup is overflowing and that's how every interaction should be. However, when you just show up and you want people to fill your cup, there's not enough to go around. Nobody's cup is overflowing and each and every one of us has the ability to bring more than what we're expected to. And I tell you, when we do that, that just ignites others to do the same. And that's a group that I want to be a part of. That's a group that I am thankful to be a part of. And I'm going to thank all of the members of the Rising Tide Mastermind, not only for being a member but for coming with that full cup mentality and for helping me with the issues that I have and making this show better and all of the things that I bring each and every week, I want to thank you because I am a better person because I am part of that group. So Nation, maybe the Rising Tide Mastermind is right for you. Maybe another group is right for you. But I'm going to tell you there is a right group for you out there. And if you are not looking for that group, life is too difficult to do it alone. When you join a group, you get further faster while having more fun. And I urge everyone out there to have a group of trusted advisors, whether it's the Rising Tide Mastermind or not. I have seen how these groups come together and I have seen what it does to the individuals within that group. And folks, I cannot imagine my life without a group like that. Something else I want you to consider is how are you bolstering your knowledge? How are you meeting new people within our industry? And a great way to do that is to go to our events page where we have every water event that we are aware of for your viewing pleasure so you can schedule your next conference. Heck, you might want to schedule your next 12 conferences because we have so much information out there. So December 5th through 7th in Denver, Colorado is the North American Water Loss Conference and Expo. The North American Water Loss Conference and Expo will offer attendees approaches to reducing non-revenue water, regulated developments, and a platform to share processes, methods, and techniques with everybody there. This event is hosted by the American Water Works Association, and the only thing that's missing is you. And if you want to find out how you can go to that conference, we're going to have all of that information on our events page and you can simply click over to read all about it. And we've actually got calendar invites where you can click and it will put all of the conferences that you want to attend right in your calendar right there. What a great gift the great staff at the Scaling Up H2O podcast has given to all of us. Another conference taking place December 10th through 12th is happening in Rwanda, and that's the 8th International Water Regulations Forum. 
So perhaps that's something that you might want to attend. That's hosted by the International Water Association, and we'll have all of that information on our events page. Finally, January 20th through 24th in Chicago, Illinois, the 2024 ASHRAE Water Conference is taking place, and we will have that information for you on our events page. Nation, do you know of a conference that we have not mentioned on the show? Well, maybe we don't know about it. So if you have that information, please get that to us. How do you do that? Well, you can do that just like you do when you have a show or guest idea. That's by going to scalinguph2o.com, going over to our show ideas page and letting us know whatever your idea is even shows that we do not know about, conferences that we do not know about. Once we get that, we will add that to our system and we can share that with the entire Scaling Up Nation. Well, Nation, something that I did recently was I was the keynote speaker for the International Water Conference, and I have so many new friends because of that endeavor, and you're going to meet one of my new friends today. I hope you enjoy the interview. My lab partner today is Jane Kuchera of Nalco and Ecolab. She's a senior industrial technical consultant, and we are so happy to have you here on the Scaling Up H2O podcast. Welcome, Jane. Thank you, Trace. It's great to be here and looking forward to a wonderful time discussing our mutual understanding of water treatment and reverse osmosis. And I cannot think of a greater topic to talk about. We're just going to have so much fun about it. All right. Looking forward to it. Before we do that, though, can you tell the Scaling Up Nation a bit about yourself? Okay, well, my name again is Jane Kuchera. I am a regular person. I enjoy photography, travel, Formula One racing. My favorite thing has been to three races in Australia, Monaco, and Canada, which were really fun. And what I do for a living is I design water and wastewater treatment plants. And I really enjoy that. I enjoy my family, my significant other, Paul, and my three cats. How about that? Well, I'm curious, how does somebody fall into this industry? I love asking that question because it's like snowflakes. There's a different answer for everybody. Oh, boy. This was totally by accident. I was going to graduate school at UCLA, and I had a research assistantship as part of my scholarship. So I went to a professor and I said, I'd like to work for you in non-equilibrium thermodynamics. And he said, I don't have any government money, so go down and talk to Julius Glader down in the seawater lab. He's got plenty of money. So I went down there and that was the desalination membrane lab where Loeb and Suri Rajan developed the first commercially viable reverse osmosis membranes in the late 50s, early 60s. So I got to work with some of the same people that were working on developing the first commercially viable membranes. That is fascinating. It was such a joy to see how it all began. And I got to work with some of these same people that were way smarter than me figuring all these things out. We're going to talk a lot about reverse osmosis, but I'm curious, what was the original problem that they were trying to solve? What was their hypothesis? Do you know any of that information? Yeah, people needed water, you know, especially in the Middle East where you have seawater and you can't drink, you can't make power out of it, you can't, and you know, you got increasing populations. So what do you do? You can use evaporation, but that is requires a lot of energy because it's a phase change. You're going from a liquid phase to a vapor phase, and then you condense the vapor as your good water. So they were looking how to make fresh, clean water in a less energy-intensive way. And so they looked at reverse osmosis and, you know, came up with these cellulose acetate membranes, CA membranes, that did the job pretty well. That is interesting. I I had no idea that your experience went back to the origins of RO. This is going to be an amazing interview. (laughs) 
great. Yeah, it did. Yeah. Well, let's start there. If somebody is just tuning in today and maybe they've heard of RO or reverse osmosis, but they really don't know what it is, what's a basic definition of reverse osmosis? Okay. It is a separation process where you remove dissolved ions and solids like sodium and chloride and calcium and things like that that are dissolved in water from the water. So you have one influence stream coming in, and then you have a product water stream that's very, very low in minerals, and you have a high concentration stream that's low volume, but very high concentration of dissolved solids. And it's a pressure-driven process. So you use pressure to force the water through the membrane, and the membrane retains the minerals and dissolved solids. So that's, that's a real simple, in a nutshell, how it works. So in normal osmosis, nature likes an equilibrium. So normal osmosis is from low to high, but we're reversing the osmosis, and that's why we need pressure. Correct. Correct. Because each solution with minerals in it has a pressure, and it depends on the concentration of the dissolved solids. They exert what we call osmotic pressure. And in in natural flow of things, water will move from the low concentration compartment into the high concentration where there's higher pressure in order to dilute that stream. And so then you get equilibrium where you have the same concentration on both sides. To get reverse osmosis to work, you have to apply a pressure greater than the osmotic pressure of the solution to force the water to move in the reverse direction. And that's where the pressure comes in. You're absolutely right. Why would somebody choose RO over a different type of filtration? Oh, boy. Well, reverse osmosis, pretty compact. The membranes are easy to make. It doesn't require a lot of chemicals. Like for ion exchange, you need acid and caustic and neutralization, and you need to store all that stuff. So you have all that stuff and then neutralize the waste. And the other competitor, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, is evaporation. And that is large-scale type systems where there's a phase change. So it's, it's pretty energy intensive. And with some of the developments in membranes going to lower pressure operations and, and better membrane selectivity and things like that, we've gotten to the point where you can use reverse osmosis even in Middle East where there's those big desalination plants, that reverse osmosis is outpacing evaporation now for the number one desalination mechanism. My passion is water, so I work in water, and I also scuba dive, so that's my hobby. And one of my favorite places to scuba dive is Bonaire, and that's in the Dutch Caribbean, and all of their water for the island is reverse osmosis. And there's actually a big pipe that we scuba dive over, and we can see all of their discharge water. And you can see that it's highly concentrated, and it's going back into salt water, and you can see that it's more concentrated than the surrounding water. So uh, explain that. We get a, a very high concentration coming off for every so much of the water that we desire. Right. And that percentage varies on the pressure you can apply and the concentration and the osmotic pressure. But you're right. You have one clean stream and one highly concentrated stream and you can recover anywhere for seawater. It's like 40 to 50% of the water you send in comes out as fresh water, but with sustainability and trying to increase you know, recycling and reclaiming water, we're getting up to 85, 90, 95% recovery on reverse osmosis type systems. Now you touched upon seeing that high concentration solution coming back out into the ocean. That's one of the knocks against reverse osmosis is where do you put the concentrate? And we do have a session, I'm, I'm bringing up IWC right now, International Water Conference, we do have a session on brine management, where we talk about what to do with the brine that comes off of these desalination and evaporation and reverse osmosis type systems. So it's there's a number of things you can do with it, and it's site specific, but that is a concern with reverse osmosis. 
Well, I can tell you from firsthand experience and scuba diving over that uh, discharge, the coral looks very different where that discharge is. Yeah, they have to adjust. A good example, when I said 50% recovery, that means assuming all of the minerals are rejected by the membrane, you are now concentrating those minerals by a factor of two. So if you had 100 milligrams per liter coming in, you will have 200 in your concentrate stream. If you go to 90% recovery, you have 10 times the concentration. 95, you're at 40 times concentration. So you get to those high concentration solutions and you have to really figure out what to do with it. We're talking about very large systems, but of course you can also get systems that go underneath your kitchen sink. How do you size these systems? Oh boy. Well, sizing of the reverse osmosis system really depends on how much you want to use and what kind of recovery you can get. So, you know, for example, I'm working on several projects right now where they're like in the 600 GPM range, 1000 GPM range, and a lot of things have to do with designing for feed water guidelines and avoiding fouling and scaling, which does happen with the membranes when you design it. You design for a recovery and fluxes, which is the water per square foot per day of membrane. So we design for avoiding fouling and scaling, and that's really how we size the system. So if you are too aggressive and you make a smaller system for you know, your 600 GPM, you're going to foul and scale faster than if you do a conservative design and come up with a larger, more membrane and a, a better construction of how you arrange those membranes in the system. So that's something that the designer really has to take into account when they're, when they're sizing their RO system. We mentioned the small under-the-sink version, and we have something like that in our lab. Uh, we, we have our water, which is actually pretty good considering, but we put it through an RO, and then we polish it with, uh, with some uh, DI resin. With the ion exchange, right. And, and we get some great water that we don't have to worry about any, any residuals as we're doing testing and different dilutions. But I tell you, I love teaching new reps reverse osmosis by saying, let's look under the sink and talk <laughs> about what's going on. So there's a lot to be learned from those small scale models. Absolutely. And the large systems work exactly the same way as the small systems work. Speaking of scaling up, scaling up from the sink system to a large system has different issues, but basically the membranes are the same. You're dealing with the same in one stream in and a waste stream and a good stream coming out. So basically just the same. There are different types of membranes on the market. Can you speak to that? Yes. Uh, originally, we talked about the cellulose acetate, which is one kind of polymer. Those are still used, but more in niche-type applications. The advantage of those membranes is they can tolerate free chlorine. So you can send it up to about 1 ppm, 1 milligram per liter of free chlorine on a continuous basis and avoid or minimize, we should say, biofouling. Polyamide membranes, or PA, sometimes referred to as thin film composites, or TFC, are made out of polyamide material, and it's, it's actually a composite of polyamide on top of polysulfone. So you have two different membranes, and that's why it's called a thin film composite, because it's a composite of two different materials. Those membranes come in a huge variety of types. You have seawater, you've got brackish water, you've got high rejection, you've got low energy, you've got sanitary, you've got high temperature. All of them have a little bit different characteristics to them. And depending on what your application is, you need to pick the, the correct one for your application. So, yeah, so there's a lot of them out there. You wrote a great white paper on the fouling of those types of membranes. I want to make sure we have that on our show notes page, if that's all right with you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Membrane biofouling and, and how to avoid it and techniques and things like that. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a long paper, but it covers everything you ever wanted to know or didn't want to know about membrane biofouling. So thanks for bringing that up. 
Well, speaking of that, let's talk about some of the things that can go wrong with reverse osmosis. So everything's installed, it's working fine until it's not. What are some of the things that we need to be monitoring? And then what do we need to know in order to get it to where it needs to be if it's not working properly? Right. The key to that starts with the design of the membrane system. So you need to design get the what we call the array, which is how you arrange the membranes in the RO system. With your under-sync system, you have one membrane. With a 600 GPM system, you have 150, 200 membranes. And how you arrange them makes a big difference because if you don't arrange them properly, you enhance fouling and scaling. So that's the first thing. The second thing is proper monitoring and pretreatment. So kind of two things. So if you have a lot of iron and manganese phalanx coming in, they need to be addressed before they get to the RO membrane. If you have scale coming in, those that needs to be addressed before you get to the RO membrane. And scale really is a concentration phenomenon. So the higher your recovery, the more likely you are to scale. So you really have to think about that as you're designing for your 75, 80, 85, 90% recovery systems. And then the monitoring, the last piece is making sure that you monitor the health of your membranes and you start proactively cleaning the membranes when your data tells you it's time to clean. That's difficult for some industries, especially food and beverage. They're always trying to make water and more water and they run out of time to be able to clean and then it just phalanx become irreversibly attached to the membrane. So if you wait too long to clean, you'll never recover full performance and it's kind of goes into a downward spiral then. So really the design, the pretreatment and the monitoring are absolutely the keys to making sure your system is going to keep working well. Could you describe the high points of the cleaning process? Cleaning, interesting, yes. So we have cleaning, you have a high pH cleaning and a low pH cleaning. The high pH involves detergents and EDTA and some other chemistries. And the idea is to take out organics and biofouling. And as you know, biofouling really requires sanitation where you kill everything. You cannot sanitize polyamide membranes because they dissolve in the oxidant. So that's actually what my thesis research was on, is how membranes dissolve in chlorine. So yeah, so you can't really sanitize, but you can disinfect um, and it's it's sort of okay. Um, you can recover some performance, especially if you clean on time. So you've got that, and you do that first because the extracellular polymers that surround bio, that make the slime that you see and feel, that basically can set or gel if you do a low pH cleaning first. So unless you're absolutely positive you have no biofouling, you want to do your high pH cleaning first, and then you follow with a low pH cleaner, some acid, citric acid, or something like that to remove iron and aluminum and calcium carbonate scales, calcium fluoride, things like that. So it's this two-step process where people get hung up is in sizing of the cleaning pump. It's too small in most cases. You, you need good cross-flow velocity because not only is your cleaning chemical, but also hydraulic. So you need that good hydraulic cross-flow velocity to remove things that you've deposited on the membrane that you've now lifted off with the chemistry. And the other thing is people don't allow enough time. It takes time to clean. So a two-stage system with a high and a low pH cleaning would take about 12 hours to clean. And people try and get that done in three or four, and you're not going to get a good clean. And then you're going to clean earlier the next time and the next time. And again, we get back into our downward spiral. That is the issue. Customers always want to know how quickly can you do this? And uh, it's like an episode of Star Trek. Well, I need it done in 12 hours. We don't have 12 hours. You only have three hours or whatever they said on that show. 
So, right. so it's not done right. We don't. We now don't get the uh, longevity in between cleanings, and the customer right. wants to know uh, how long they can go until they can schedule another cleaning. So, if we're all working well together, we are putting the right amount of time in. We're giving twelve hours, and then when we get our customers to schedule the next cleaning, what's a way to determine that? Okay, what we have when we monitor is we call normalization of data. And what normalization of data does is kind of convert every day, your your day-to-day data to what you had when you had brand new membranes. So there are six things that affect membrane performance, fouling, scaling, membrane degradation, temperature, pressure, and concentration. And those change from hour to hour, day to day, month to month. But when you had brand new membranes, you take data, let's say 24 hours after starting up, and that becomes your baseline temperature, pressure, and concentration. And then what normalization does, it's some equations, you can get them from the, from the American testing, ASTM, American Society of Testing, or I, I forget what the uh, ASTM stands for. We can maybe look that up or put it in your your glossary at the end there. But ASTM has some equations that you plug into and then you look at the curve that results and look at your normalized data. And if your normalized data shows that you are decreasing or increasing by a certain percent, it becomes time then to schedule your cleaning. And a lot of people don't follow that. They don't follow their normalized data. I I come into customers all the time and I ask them, where's your normalized data? And I get this blank look. (laughs) I I know, okay, so now we don't know when to clean and you clean when your pump reaches the maximum pressure and you can't make any more water. (laughs) And that's usually the case. That is usually the case. And then it becomes an emergency instead of a planned event. Exactly. And, And then you wind up replacing membranes. Because you've, you've exceeded the maximums on the membrane, you start breaking the membranes apart. We call that telescoping when your differential pressure is too high and it just kind of unrolls. You know, like when you have Christmas wrapping paper and you're trying to roll it back up and the end always undoes. Yeah, that's telescoping. Your membrane can do that as well if it's supplied with too much differential pressure. That's a fantastic analogy. I remember being at a conference. It might have been the IWC, but it was on reverse osmosis. And the prediction was that every cooling tower was going to have some sort of reverse osmosis and put it into the boiler. Do you remember that there was a bunch of information about that? It never really happened. Yeah, it's because it's a lot more difficult than it sounds. It requires, again, we get to the pretreatment. Cooling tower blowdown is dirty. It's very dirty water, high concentration of dissolved solids, and it has a lot of suspended solids in it from the atmosphere, everything that gets into the tower. So it's not as easy as just sticking an RO on the end and sending that water back to the boiler. A lot of people have looked at making some standardized type systems to treat cooling tower blowdown, but there's nothing out there yet where you can say, oh, I want one of those packages. I'm going to put that on mine. And, and our company is working on, on trying to develop some of those packages. But to date, it's, it's so site-specific and individual that trying to put a standard package together is extremely difficult for that. I want to say that was about 20 years ago. And the warning was every industrial water treater better get ready for this because it's going to change the entire industry. And uh, we just haven't seen it yet. No, no, we haven't. There's a lot of things that really haven't come to fruition. And I think that's one of the things that people have learned about reverse osmosis over the years is it's not a black box that you can put everywhere. You need to understand what your pretreatment requirements are, what water you're sending to it. The RO doesn't care if it's getting city water or wastewater. It has to have the same quality of water going to it. Otherwise, it's going to foul and scale. So it's not just drop in and let it go and do its thing. Those are the customers that have the biggest problems is where they just drop it in, didn't do any pretreatment, and then expect it to work like it was working on city water. Well, let's stay on that topic for a while because there are a lot of industries that are using reverse osmosis for recovery water. Where are you seeing that very successfully used? 
Good question. Not very many people are doing it successfully for recovering water for back into their into their plants. And the reason why is, is expensive. And water in this country is still cheap. And I just gave a presentation to AICHE on this. And the bottom line is until people realize the value of water, you know, companies say they want to be sustainable and green and all that stuff. But then when they come back and they look at the cost for all the pre-treatment, you know, usually need clarifiers, sometimes biological treatment, clarifiers, ultrafiltration, RO, maybe even some polishing of the RO water. It gets to be very expensive. And unless they have no way of getting more fresh water in the front end of the plant, there's no payback or the payback is six or seven years and customers can't handle that at this point. So until we get to the point where water is more valued and has a higher value on it, um, then, then I think we will see more of it, more successful application of it. I totally agree that the fact that water is easy to come by and it's relatively cheap here in the States. Um, I interviewed somebody over in Israel and she said, if you want to look for emerging water technologies, look what they're doing over there because they don't have water and it is not cheap. Yes. Yes. And at IWC this year, we do have two or three presenters from some of the comp companies in Israel presenting some of their ideas on how to achieve higher recovery even because that's important because they can't afford to waste 25 or 15% of the water coming into the RO, they need to use as much as they can. So we, we do have people from Israel coming to our international water conference talking on those very same topics. Absolutely. What would you consider advanced or the next generation of reverse osmosis? Well, there's a number of problems that need to be overcome. And one of those is the chlorine tolerance. So we need membranes that are chlorine tolerant or oxidant tolerant so we can sterilize and not just disinfect the membranes because biofouling is a big problem and it's difficult to control. And when we're talking about food and beverage, if you have any leak in your membranes or interconnectors or anything like that, the bio on the feed side of the membrane gets into your product. So you have to be very, very careful. So if we could do that, that would be great. I think as we go to more sustainable and need to recover more wastewater for recycle and reclaim and reuse, we need to be able to operate at higher concentrations. And that's where our ultra-high-pressure ultra reverse osmosis membranes come into play. Those go up to um, 1,800 PSI, pounds per square inch, and those membranes, they have some issues with them. I'm working with Dr. Hook at, at UCLA um, with some of his graduate students that put out a great paper on how these membranes, the polyamide membranes, get embossed by the permeate carriers used to create the membrane spiral wound element. And it's putting holes in the membrane at those high pressures. So we need to come up with either new types of elements that aren't spiral wound or that don't have the permeate spacers that, you know, emboss onto the membranes, or maybe we need a whole new class of membranes to handle these high pressure, high recovery recycle systems. So it's all very interesting. A lot of good stuff going on in, in academia and R&D. I used to do a segment on the show called The Boiling Point, and it was when I saw stuff out in the field, and I would just think, guys, what are you thinking? You can't do this. Um, <laughs> but people told me I sounded grumpy, so I don't call it The Boiling Point anymore. But I want to give you the opportunity. You're, you go out on site. You troubleshoot. What's something you just want people to stop doing? Oh, boy. Yeah, I don't even know where to start because I remember this one plant I went to and that was just a disaster. And every time they came to a decision point on what to do with their system, they went the wrong way. And so they had five or six different decision points. Like, what do I do with my iron on my pretreatment? What do I do with this? What do I do with that? 
And like, for example, I'm working, I'm troubleshooting one right now where they're fouling the membranes with bio like crazy. And so their, their pressure goes up and they can't maintain product flow. So they turn down how much water they make. Well, the system is designed for, I don't know, 100 GPM or something. You cannot turn it down to 60 GPM because when you do that, it ruins the hydraulics in your system and you start fouling and scaling the membranes even faster. So I think boiling it all down is if you don't know what to do, ask for help. Ask for help. There it is. You know, don't try and figure it out on your own. There's people that do this for a living that understand and can help you. So don't try and do it alone because you, you, you may wind up going down the wrong path and then get yourself into real trouble. I don't know if what I'm getting ready to say is like this with every industry, but it is sure like this in the water treatment industry. I have never reached out to an expert like yourself and asked a question and somebody said, oh, you don't deserve that information or I'm not going to give it to you. It's like everybody freely gives information in this industry. Absolutely. You know, when I first started going to IWC, 1994 was my first year going to IWC. And this is what I always say. I was so impressed with the knowledge of all the people presenting and stuff. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't deserve to be here. Look at all these geniuses. And then everybody was so nice and helpful with questions and problems and things like that, that I, I, as, as you say, I don't know if it's like that in every industry, but in the water treatment industry, everybody's willing to help you. It's like we're all on the same team. We're all on the same page trying to help each other. And I, I really like that about the IWC and the water treatment industry in general, is that everybody's so willing to help. Nobody says, that's my secret. I can't tell you that. Here, let's work on this problem and solve it together. Yeah, very good. Well, let's talk a little bit about the IWC because you have a pretty large role within that organization this year. So why don't we start out with what is the IWC and what are you specifically doing within the IWC? Okay. The International Water Conference, our IWC, held every year. It's a conference where we exchange ideas is really the way to put it. Ideas, new ideas, how to solve problems that have been existing for a while. We've got new ways of doing it. And what I like about the conference is it's non-commercial. The presentations are not a sales for my latest widget, you know? So we have the info share suites. We have the, the uh, H2O theater. We have an exhibit hall and we have, you know, informal networking where everybody can trade their latest widget. But the presentations are about technology and ideas, so you can actually learn something. And, and I really like that. And the other thing that we have is we have a discussion paper where somebody actually reads the paper, reads the author's paper, and writes a critique and gets up and gives the critique. And the critique is like, I didn't understand this, or why is that, or can you expound upon something, or to bring the audience into the Q&A to get them going to ask questions of the author. And so I think those two things, the non-commercialism and the fact that we have a discussion of the paper makes us unique and makes us interesting and a, and a great place to learn. And it's, uh, it, you know, for the younger professionals great place to learn. And for those of us who have been around the block for a while, it's a great, it's a great place to share your ideas with some of the, the newer people and keep that going. And we also have an emerging topics where we look for new ideas, new processes, new things coming up in the industry that are worthwhile to discuss going forward. So we develop new sessions in following years. So, uh, and, and that's, anybody can contribute an emerging topic, you know, anybody attending the conference, anybody thinking about attending the conference, just submit your emerging topic, something that's of interest to you. And we've got several that became sessions like PFOS, for example, the perfluorinated alkyl substances, right? And the high recovery RO is one, the concentrate management is one that all started out as emerging topics. 
So it's, it's a wonderful conference for anybody, any skill level, you know, a great place to go to learn. You mentioned PFAS, and I remember one of the first times I heard about it. It was in Orlando. It was an IWC conference, and I was vaguely familiar with it, but it was one of those emerging topics. Now you can't go to a water conference without that being on the list. Well, you cannot even watch television without some lawyer saying, were you exposed to PFAS? <laughs> Forever chemicals. Are you, You're in trouble. Call us. You're right. Yeah, scary stuff. And then getting back to your question, what am I doing at IWC this year? I'm the general chair for the conference. So actually the tough part was last year as the technical chair, because the technical chair, which Bill Kennedy is our technical chair this year, has to review all of the the approved abstracts and put them in order and define the sessions and get everybody all coordinated with that. So that's the tough job. And then as a reward, the following year, you get to be the general chair. So you get to introduce the conference and, you know, all the participants and everybody, you know, we've got a workshop chair and a marketing chair and a technical chair and a keynote chair, which you are, you're going to be our keynote, which is excellent. I'm really looking forward to that. I'm so excited to do that. Yeah, that's going to be wonderful. So all those people get introduced and then I just have a good time. Who should come to the International Water Conference? Anybody who wants to learn about the latest and greatest in water treatment. Not only do we have membranes, but we have boilers and cooling and wastewater and pretreatment and we have everything. So I think anybody who wants to learn about the latest and greatest of what's going on in water treatment should be there. And I know I've I've spoken to a number of different groups in the last few months on, you know, some specific topics and they get all excited when they hear about what we do at IWC with all of the different topics that we have and all the experts. And we have first-time presenters too. You know, they are the, they are the expert in their topic. So it doesn't matter if they've presented 20 times or one time, the author is the expert in their topic. And that's always appreciated and acknowledged by the attendees of IWC. So it's really great if you're first timer or you've been there a number of years, it's always great. Can you speak a bit on the exhibit hall? The exhibit hall is wonderful. Usually it's around a hundred different exhibitors. Anything you want about water treatment is there. We've got membrane companies. We've got clarifier companies. We've got instrument companies. You know, we've got just about anything you would want. And the beauty of it is you can then talk about their specific widgets. And people in the exhibit hall who are exhibiting can talk to you about their widgets and why their widgets are so great. So you don't get totally just technology, you also get the interaction with vendors. And I think that makes for a healthy conference because you get everything. And the exhibit hall is really, it's, it's great. It's great for networking. There's people I see once a year at IWC and I look forward to it and have a little chat and see what they're working on now. So it's, it's great for networking. If somebody wants to find out more about IWC, what should they do? Well, we can go to the Engineers Society of Western Pennsylvania, ESWP, which sponsors the International Water Conference. So you can go to their website, or you can just look at International Water Conference 2023 and go to the website, and we have attendees information. We've got technical information. We've got the workshops, you know, where you can take a four-hour workshop and get totally immersed in that one topic. Lindsay Wiles and myself at IWC, we're doing a workshop on reverse osmosis. So you can learn about it in four hours. You know, everything you always wanted to know about reverse osmosis in four hours. There you go. So go to those websites. You can also contact me with my email address or Dave Tiorski with the Engineer Society of Western Pennsylvania. You can contact him and we'll be happy to talk to you about it and share information and answer your questions. We will make sure to have all of that information on our show notes page. So people are driving right now. We want to make sure they don't take notes and wreck their cars. 
Exactly. Thank you so much for that. That's great. Absolutely. Well, I'm not quite done with all of my questions. I'd like to transition to the lightning round. So are you ready for those questions? Well, as ready as I'll be. (laughs) All right, let's let's go ahead. These are questions that I ask of all of my guests. Uh, So the first one, if you could go back in time and talk to your former self on your very first day as a chemical engineer, what advice would you give? I would say be more proactive. Be your best advocate. Nobody's going to do it for you. It's not going to happen. So you need to speak up for yourself. Be your best advocate, Jane, and do the best you can to try and move yourself forward. What are some of your favorite references for reverse osmosis? I like to read technical papers. Our company subscribes to, you know, Desalination and Journal of Membrane Science and a couple other ones, Water Desalination Report, things like that. I like reading the latest and the greatest of what's happening and trying to relate that to what I am doing and how I can learn to do my job and my work better. So I like reading, I like reading about what people are doing to advance the technology. And I understand that you have a book that is chock-packed full of all (laughs) sorts of resources. Can we talk about that? Sure. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. The third edition of my reverse osmosis book just came out in June titled Reverse Osmosis. That's a great title, by the way. I know. I know. Well, we didn't want any ambiguity about what it's about, right? So there we go. But it covers history, what membranes are, how they work, pre-treatment, fouling, scaling, degradation. I have a, I have a section on sustainability, which is a new one that was added to the second edition, which came out in 2015. So I added a, a section on sustainability and new topics in, in membrane research and application and, and things like that. And the beauty of it is it's so full of references so that if it's not clear the way I'm saying it, go to the reference and read it for yourself on what the reference is saying. And, you know, I'm, I am not pretending that I know it all. There are people out there, references out there who know way more than I do. And I thought if I put it all together in one place, you've, you've got it. And that will be a reference for you on reverse osmosis. And that was my whole point in writing it is I couldn't find a book when I was stuck on something, I couldn't find a reference that would answer my question. So I said, okay, I'm going to write it. And there it is. It's a fantastic resource. It should be on everybody's shelf who is in the world of reverse osmosis. And to make it as easy as possible for people to find, we're also going to have a link on our show notes page directly to that. Great. Thank you so much, Trace. And I hope people enjoy it. And I'd like the feedback. You know, I don't know if I'm going to write a fourth edition, but if I do, please give me feedback on things that you liked, what you wanted to learn more about. I'm all about improving as we move forward. Who do you want playing Jane in the movie about your life? Who would I have play me? I like Kathleen Turner. A lot of people may not know who Kathleen Turner is. But she was in one of my favorite movies, Body Heat, that came out in 1981. But she was in those Romancing the Stone and Jewel of the Nile and War of the Roses. And I think she can play a wide range of characters. And I think I've changed a lot in my life. And she could probably handle the depth and breadth of of Jane Kuchera. (laughs) I've got to say, if somebody would have asked me that question, that's exactly who I would have chosen for you. In fact, when when we had a, our very first conversation, that's who I thought of. Oh, that's great. So how about that? I should have written that down and, and shown you my answer as, as yeah. you were, were saying oh, it. Oh, that's great. My last question is, if you had the ability to talk to anybody throughout history, who would it be with and why? Oh, this I like this question. I would want to speak to any one of the original Mercury 7 astronauts. I am such a space geek. I remember growing up in grade school, the teachers would always wheel in the television into the room to watch the blast-offs and the splashdowns. And I just got so caught up in it. 
and, you know, maybe even Walter Cronkite because he was such a big fan of the space program. So any of the Mercury 7 astronauts, their life must have been so, I mean, I just, I had the chance, I was working on stuff for the space station in my first job out of school. And I had the chance to go to Johnson Space Center in Houston and go into the shuttle that they used to train the shuttle astronauts. And that was such a thrill for me. But I remember I was so claustrophobic. My heart was just pounding because I'm like, there's no way you could pay me enough to go up into this thing for a week because it's so tiny. And yeah, so I got to sit in the, the captain's chair and the whole ceiling is covered with switches and knobs and buttons. And I'm five foot six and I could barely stand up. But I just am so fascinated with, with space. So it would be one of the Mercury 7 astronauts. Jane, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing the knowledge of your career and coming on the Scaling Up H2O podcast. Well, thank you, Trace. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you and share some of the things that make Jane Kuchera, Jane Kuchera. Once again, thank you, Jane. What a fun interview. And I have to say, I've been to the International Water Conference before. I've never attended it at the level or at the role where I did just recently. But because of that, I got to meet pretty much everybody on their executive staff. What a great bunch of people and nation. I'm telling you, make sure you're looking at all the different conferences that are out there and don't just attend. Make sure that you are meeting new people. And here is a secret that is no secret, but people treat it like it's a secret because I don't think everybody does it is volunteer. All these organizations cannot do what they do unless you volunteer and help get that valuable work done. All of these trade-related organizations are run on volunteers, and that means you. Now, that means that you are going to give, and we talked about giving earlier in this show, but if you give with that full cup mentality, Others are going to see you as a giver. And I promise, it is my 100% money-back guarantee that you will get more out of volunteering when you volunteer with that full cup mentality than if you just go to a show, if you just ask people to give you items. When you show up with that full cup mentality, people see that and they want to help you. They want to fill your cup and a great way to get to know people in your community and enhance your community while you are doing it is to get to know your favorite trade-related organization like the International Water Conference, getting involved with them and volunteering with that full cup mentality. Now, if you want to see any of the associations that we work with here at Scaling Up H2O, of course, we We've got that on our webpage. I've said it a dozen times, but why not one more? That's scalinguph2o.com, and we have so many resources for you there. And it really is my wish that you get involved. I promise you will not be sorry that you did. Now, somebody I met because I got involved and he got involved is our friend James McDonald. And here is a brand new Periodic Water Table with James. Hello and welcome to the Periodic Water Table with James, where we think and learn about water chemistry drop by drop. Please use your week to search online, ask your colleagues, or even pick up a book to learn more about each week's Periodic Water Table topic. If you do, at the end of the year, you'll be 52 water chemistry smarter. So let's raise the water table of knowledge together and get started. Today's topic is... AMP, or AMP, or ATMP, or aminotrimethylene phosphonic acid. Its chemical formula is C3H12NO9P3. It is a phosphonate. What is AMP used for? 
Is it synergistic with other ingredients to improve its corrosion inhibitor abilities? What is the impact of oxidizing biocides upon AMP? How does AMP compare to other phosphonates? What is its calcium tolerance? When would one choose to use AMP? Can it help control calcium sulfate precipitation? Remember, knowledge is power, and taking the time to learn more about water chemistry each week will help make you a force to be reckoned with. Be sure to post what you learn to social media and tag it with hashtag watertable23 and hashtag scalinguph2o. I look forward to learning more from you. James, as always, thank you for helping us learn a little bit more each and every week. And thank you to all the Scaling Up Nation members. Thank you for listening and thank you for tuning in to the new episode that we will have for you next Friday. Have a great week, folks. Scaling Up Nation, you asked for it and it is here. So many of you are taking the Certified Water Technologist examination and you're wanting to get better information on how to better answer the mock exam. Now this is the exam that you get when you sign up for the CWT exam. Well, I have heard your request and I've done exactly that. I have recorded a class that has exactly what you've been asking for. It is me answering each one of the questions and letting you know why I chose certain answers. And of course, everybody wants me to do math and I do all the math on the mock exam. So you can see how to get the right answer. And I hope this is something that will help build your confidence so you can get your certification. You can go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash CWT prep. Once again, that's scalinguph2o.com forward slash CWT prep. Get out there and get your certification today.